Hey, good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'm a little bit tempted to do like Robbie and see if there's any volunteers who want to come up and preach this morning. But I'm afraid several of you would take me up on it and there would be thunderous applause as I step down. So I'm not going to do that. But I do want to say Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers who are here in the room. For all of you mothers who are watching online, you know, it's a day that we sort of set aside to remember, to thank, to honor our mothers. And whether you're celebrating today, whether today's more of a day of quiet reflection, we can remember and honor our mothers who kind of got us started in this story, right? So happy Mother's Day to everyone. I am one of those fortunate people who can agree with Abraham Lincoln when he said, all that I am and ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. So happy Mother's Day this morning. I've spent the last several weeks picking out just some specific words and focusing on those words sort of in the context of life lived in the kingdom. And um, today's word actually sprang from thinking about where I've been and how we got to where we are and how I've got to where I am. It's not necessarily a Mother's Day sermon per se, but that's sort of the path that I got started on. And as you can see, today's word is gifts. I heard about a guy who was talking to a friend of his, and he said, I finally got my mother the perfect Mother's Day gift. This friend said, really, what did you get her? I got her a coffee mug that says, Happy Mother's Day from the world's worst son. And then he said, I forgot to mail it, but I think she knows. So, I don't know how many of you receive gifts on Mother's Day. I don't know how many of you give gifts on Mother's Day. But I've got to tell you, for a man to give a woman a gift, it's a tricky thing, right? I don't care if it's your mother, your, your wife, your, your girlfriend. It's a little bit tricky for a man to give a woman a gift, mainly because we're pretty clueless when it comes to what would be the right gift to give a woman. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing like an honest man in the crowd. But really, what gift is the right gift to give any woman? You know what they say about jewelry, right? What I can afford, she won't want. What she wants, I can't afford. That's true. And you don't dare give a woman the gift of clothing. Whew. You got like a 1 in 10,000 chance of getting that right. Uh, There's 9,999 times you're going to blow it on that. Because if you get something that's like a couple sizes too big, that's not the right message. And if you get something that's a couple sizes too small, that's not the right message either. And if somehow you luck out and get the right size, what are the chances of you getting the right style? Zero. So you can't give clothes. You can't give kitchenware as a gift unless they specifically ask for it. And even then, you better get it in writing. Now, the good thing for me, personally, my wife doesn't care that much about gifts. That's, I, I mentioned last week, that is, that is not her love language. My wife is so great, and she's so forgiving, she's so understanding about my ineptitude at gift-giving. Really, all Martha really wants is a card. If I give her a card, that's great. 
if I remember to sign the card, that's even better. So luckily for me, Martha has set the bar very, very low. Low expectations on gifts from me. She's like really super low maintenance on that. And that's mainly because I'm not a very good gift giver. But this morning, I want to talk about someone who is the perfect gift giver and someone who has given some of the best gifts ever, the best gifts ever. And I want to do it from a place that we don't talk about very much. I want to talk about some some hidden gifts that are kind of tucked away in an unusual place. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to talk this morning, believe it or not, about the genealogy of Jesus. And um, I am going to do something that is public speaking suicide. I am actually going to read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, if I can. And I'm going to ask you to follow along and listen, uh, if you can, as I read the genealogy of Jesus. And usually, I I put the the whole passage up on the screen. I'm not going to do that. I'm asking you, you know, open up your Bible, your tablet, your phone, wherever you you read from, and and just kind of read along with me uh, as I read Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, who was a bad guy. Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're almost there. Stay with me. You're doing great. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shatil, Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, Abiad, the father of Elakim. Elikim, the father of Azor, man, what names? Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Anyone still awake? Anyone? Anyone still with me? Very good. That is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. 
That is how the first book in the New Testament starts. But honestly, how many of you kind of checked out after the first few, the father ofs? Honestly, right? I mean, it's just tough to, fo- it's tough to follow. I have never before, there's a real good chance I will never again read that passage in a, in a public setting, out loud in a sermon. In fact, I was trying to remember. I don't think that I have ever heard that passage read in a sermon situation. The beginning of Matthew's gospel, it's just, it's just that section we skip over. You know, it's just that section we, we just kind of get on to the next part. But I'm telling you, if we skip over it, we miss some incredible gifts that are hidden there. Now, I want to share with you a couple gifts that are tucked away in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's account. Here's the first one. It's the gift of identity. Now, if you and I were writing a book that we wanted people to read, personally, I would want to start with a really good opening. Well, call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I'd want to put something there that would make people want to continue reading. I personally would not start my book the way Matthew started his. You know, it's pretty dry stuff that Matthew is sharing. But there's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to begin his gospel the way he did. Genealogy was a way of introduction. It was a way of explaining who someone was, especially in terms of qualifications. For instance, in the first century, if you wanted to be a priest, you would have to be able to prove through your genealogy that you were descended from Aaron. Genealogies were a way of proving your qualifications. They used genealogies sort of the way we would use a resume. And with the resume, you know, you don't want to put anything on a resume that kind of... Highlights a a blot or a a blemish. You don't want to put anything on your resume that's going to cause somebody to raise their eyebrow and wonder what's that doing there. Nothing that will make you look bad. Knowing that. Understanding that. How important genealogies were to the people in Jesus' time and knowing how important it was for them to make their genealogy as impressive as they possibly could. Some of the things that are in that passage to us reading, are shocking. But to those first century Jews reading it, it would have been scandalous. But that says a lot about God. And what Matthew includes in his genealogy says a lot, not just about Jesus, the the human being, but Jesus, the Son of God. From a Jewish standpoint, they would have listened to that very differently than you just listened to that. They would have read it very differently than I just read it. From a Jewish standpoint, there were all kinds of things wrong with that genealogy of Jesus. Um, For instance, there are women in this genealogy. Now, living in the 21st century, a man in the 21st century, I would have no problem putting women in my genealogy. In fact, I'd be honored because I have some amazing women in my family tree. But if I was a man living in the first century, I would never put a woman in my genealogy. 
And you don't have to be a history major to know why that's the case. In the first century, we've talked about this before, women had no status. They had no standing. Um, but here in Jesus' genealogy, for everyone to see, for all times, there's not a woman, there are five women referenced in his genealogy. Not only are there the wrong gender included in his genealogy, there's the wrong nationalities as well. There's the wrong groups of people. Again, no self-respecting Jew would ever put a Gentile in his genealogy. But it's actually worse than that. There's not just Gentiles. There's, there's Moabites and Canaanites and Hittites listed in Jesus' family tree. Groups of people that were despised by the Israelites. So you've not only got the wrong gender included, you've got the wrong groups of people listed in Jesus' family tree. More shocking than that, you've got the wrong kinds of people listed in his genealogy. This genealogy is filled with people of very sketchy moral standing. Uh, Rahab is on the list. You know what Rahab's full name was? Apparently her middle name was The. And her last name was Prostitute. Because almost every time she is mentioned in Scripture, Old Testament and New, she is referred to as Rahab the Prostitute. Uh, she's mentioned on this list. Not the kind of information you would want leaked out you know, for public consumption if you were drafting your family tree. Tamar is on the list. Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. You want to talk about a sordid story? Genesis 38 is not the Bible story you parents should be reading to your kids before you tuck them in at night. I mean, you want to wait till they're married and then point them to that story. I mean, it's, it's an R-rated story, to be sure. Tamar was not a prostitute, but she dressed up like a prostitute so that she could seduce her father-in-law, sleep with her father-in-law, had a child by that union. That's on Matthew's list. And you notice, Matthew doesn't just list the name Perez, which was the child by that twisted union. He actually includes the twin brothers, Zerah and Tamar and Judah. Matthew is deliberately shining a very bright spotlight on this whole twisted, sordid, dark story. Now, what in the world is wrong with Matthew? Why are you highlighting these kinds of things? And then finally, he gets to David, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, thank you. David, yes. David, King David. You know, David, the man after God's own heart. David, the writer of the Psalms. David, the, the moral compass of all of Israel. Finally, a name we can all be proud to have on our family lineage. But you notice how he introduces David? Verse 6, if you still have it open, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He doesn't just say David. He talks about Solomon. And he talks about Solomon's mother. He doesn't mention her by name, but everybody knows it's Bathsheba. And he says she had been Uriah's wife. Matthew wants to be sure everybody reading this remembers the story. 
What story is that? Well, when David was on the run from King Saul, he's hiding out in the wilderness, and a bunch of other men come and kind of join him there, but they're not ordinary men. They're men of tremendous valor, tremendous courage, and they kind of start fighting with David and for David, and they get to be known as David's mighty men. And these are an amazing group of people, and one of them is a Hittite by the name of Uriah. Uriah goes off fighting David's battles. David is at home, and he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop, and he sends a messenger to find out who that woman is. The messenger comes back, and the message is, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's the message that David receives back. Here's who this woman is. She is the wife, underline wife, of Uriah, your friend Uriah, you remember back in the wilderness days, right, David? She is his wife, Bathsheba, Uriah, wife, husband, they're together. That's who this is, the wife of your friend Uriah. Of course, David sins for Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. A child is uh, um, conceived because of that. So this man, after God's own heart, the writer of Psalms, the moral compass of Israel, has this man, Uriah, killed, trying to cover up this sin. That's the story that Matthew wants to be sure everybody remembers when they read his genealogy of Jesus. Among others, you have Rahab the prostitute, Tamar, who dresses up like a prostitute so she can sleep with her father-in-law. You have Ruth, the Moabitess, the housewife. Bathsheba, the adulteress. David, the murderer. It looks a lot less like a respectable genealogy and a lot more like a, a lineup for the Jerry Springer show, right? I mean, this is, this is really messed up. So what is Matthew doing? Well, for one, he's showing us that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the genealogy of Jesus. I think what he's doing is he's showing us the unbelievable presence and the unbelievable power of grace. Right off the bat, before he gets into anything else, I think Matthew is spotlighting and highlighting the presence and the grace of God. Adultery, incest, prostitution, Moabites, Canaanites, illegitimate children, gender outsiders, racial outsiders, moral outsiders, they're all there. They're all there in Jesus' family tree. That very first section of the very first chapter of Matthew, that part we always skip over, let's get to the good stuff. Well, there's good stuff in that first section. Matthew is making this beautiful testament to the fact that no one is outside of the grace of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. The grace of God can and does cover a repentant sinner. Matthew wants to be sure that everybody understands that. Timothy Keller said this, no one, absolutely no one, not even the greatest, does not need the grace of God. And no one, absolutely no one, not even the lowest, can fail to receive the grace of God 
when they seek God. We all sit at the same table. Kings and prostitutes, housewives and princesses, male, female, Jew and Gentile. And if you believe in Jesus and obey his gospel, his good news, you too can sit at this table. You too sit at the table of a king. You know, up until about 100 years ago, we identified ourselves kind of through our families and through our communities. Now we live in one of the most individualistic cultures in the history of mankind. Now we identify ourselves and other people by what we have and what we do, you know, by our job, where we live, how we live. But if you look at our culture, doesn't it seem like people are, are more depressed and more anxious more stressed out, more insecure than, than ever before. And I think it has something to do with the way we define ourselves. Because if we define ourselves any way other than a child of God, if we define ourselves any way other than, than through Jesus, you know, we're constantly on that treadmill of self-justification. We're constantly trying to prove that we belong, that, we, that we're good enough, uh, that uh, you know, we have something to prove. The scripture tells us our identity isn't in what we do. Our identity is in what's been done for us. Paul very famously writes in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to this? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. And then he'll go on to say in verse 37, No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, if your identity is anywhere other than in Jesus Christ, when the wheels come off, when trouble comes, when things go wrong, you're going to be devastated. You're going to be crushed. But if your identity is in Christ, when things go wrong and things go wrong, when trouble comes and, and trouble comes, yeah, we'll be hurt. And yeah, we'll grieve. But we'll stand. And we'll survive. Because we have a rock-solid identity of who we are and whose we are. See that the table of the king... But then there's another gift in that passage that I just so poorly read to you. Um, and that's the gift of hope. Now you think about some of the people that are mentioned in Matthew's account of Jesus' uh, family history. You know, it's Mother's Day. You think about some of the mothers of those people. No mother ever looks at her little child and dreams that her little girl one day grows up to be a woman of ill repute, Right? No mother wants their daughter to, to get herself in the same situation that Tamar was in. No one wants their son to grow up to be like Manasseh. No mother wishes that for her children. So what do you do when life gets really messy? And what do you do when your family gets a little bit messy? Here's an interesting thing about this whole genealogy that, that uh, Matthew shares with us. It's not just that Jesus was descended from Tamar and Bathsheba... It's not just that he was descended from people who did sinful things. Matthew shows us that Jesus was actually descended at the point of that sin. It was at the point of the sin 
that, that is part of Jesus' lineage. Uh, Jesus is descended from the generation of Jacob. We all know Jacob. But he doesn't come through the line of Joseph, the prince of Egypt. If, 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 I, were, if I were drawing out the, the family tree, I'd, I'd want you know, Jesus to go through the line of Joseph. But he doesn't. He goes through the line of Perez, the child of Judah and Tamar. And why didn't God choose Joseph? Or Benjamin? Or even Reuben, you know, the oldest? Instead, it's Judah. In fact, instead, it's Judah and Tamar and Perez. That, that, that R-rated story from Genesis 38. Well, what that tells me is, when I look at my messed up family, you know, God can work through any situation. And God can work through any uh, uh, circumstance. No matter how hopeless something might seem to us, God can break through. You know, and God takes, the, takes these kind of messed up families and you know, breaks through with something beautiful, right? This genealogy shows a God who can break through in the lives of people who have made terrible decisions. He can make, break through in the lives of people who have broken families. He can break through in, through some pretty serious sin. Because when you look at this dry reading at the beginning of Matthew, you don't just see a list. You should see a map. A map of grace. Grace breaking through when no one thought it was possible. You see a gift of hope. We've all got skeletons in our closets, right? And we've all got a lot of mistakes in our past. Listen to what uh, Micah says in Micah chapter 7. Where is the God who can compare with you? Wiping the slate clean of guilt, turning a blind eye, a deaf ear to the past sins of your purged and precious people. You don't nurse your anger and you don't stay angry long for mercy is your specialty. That's what you love most. And compassion is on its way to us. You'll stamp out our wrongdoing. You'll sink our sins to the bottom of the ocean. You'll stay true to your word to Father Jacob and continue the compassion you showed Grandfather Abraham, everything you promised our ancestors from a long time ago. God doesn't give up on us when we sin. Which is really good news because we're all sinners. (laughs) Regardless of how how serious, how grievous that sin might be, he's able to work through those things to accomplish his purpose. There's always hope. God is a lot closer than you think he is. And he's working a lot harder on your behalf than you could ever imagine. It's hope. Well, I'm talking about gifts this morning found in the genealogy of Jesus. I mentioned the gift of identity. I mentioned the gift of hope. But let's be sure we don't bury the lead here, right? I mean, the whole passage points to the one best gift, right? The whole passage is really focusing on the ultimate gift, the gift of of Jesus. Now, we can't miss that. Through Jesus, all men, all women... Everywhere would be blessed, all people. Through Jesus, a light has been shown to the Jews and the Gentiles and the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Americans and the Russians 
the Canadians, all nations. Through Jesus, God's name is honored, praised, worshipped all over the world. Through Jesus, salvation would in fact come to every tribe, every nation, every person, everywhere. Again, don't miss the obvious. The gift of Jesus reminds us in the most dramatic way possible God is working even when it seems that He's distant, even when it seems that maybe He's still. And through this remarkable story, we're reminded that God works in personal ways. Yeah, He's the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. But He's the God of me as well. And yes, He raises up nations and tears down nations, and He blesses nations, but He blesses me as well. In Matthew chapter 1, those first 17 verses remind me that even when circumstances might argue to the contrary, I serve a God who can be trusted. And I serve a God who loves me even when I'm unlovable. As far away as I might have wondered, God wants me home. And He's not waiting for me to get it all figured out. He's not waiting for me to get it all right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is that, that ultimate gift. We're talking about gifts on Mother's Day. Gift of identity. The gift of hope. The gift of Jesus. But with all gifts, the gift isn't really worth too much if I don't accept the gift, right? I mean, just because a gift is offered, if I leave it on the table, it's not really much of a blessing to me, right? I mean, God in His wisdom has given me the choice to accept this gift, these gifts, or to pass on the gifts. Well, that's where we come in. We don't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. All we have to do is accept it. Well, how do you accept the gifts of God? Through obedience. We obey Him. We love Him. We humble ourselves and we submit to Him. We confess Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Believe that He's God's Son. Sent to this earth. Died on a cross. Three days later, God brought Him back to life. I repent of my sins. I humbly submit to baptism in the name of Jesus. And scripture says, leaves and is baptized will be saved. I think we make that so much harder than it has to be. It's not a secret code. God's not trying to trick us. I think God's word means what it says. Well, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. The best gifts, the gifts that really count, they're available to us. Not because of us, because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we think about the people that you've placed in our lives. And... Uh, you know, on a day like today, we certainly think of mothers and uh, the influence that mothers have on uh, not just their children, but on so many people. 
and for some word. Uh, but Father, uh, when we talk about you and we talk about our family tree, would you remind us that it begins with our ultimate Father and the giver of every good and perfect gift. So thank you for giving us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Thank you for the identity that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. And thank you for the salvation that is ours because of his sacrifice on the cross. Pray that you would continue to be with us this day. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Dave is going to lead us in a song to, to get us ready to share communion together.